Mark chapter 12. We'll start reading at verse 12 through verse 26. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they had sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room that I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is the one, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Heavenly Father, we ask that during this time that you would show us the truth of our Savior. Show us who he is. Show us what he's come to do. Show us what he has come to fulfill. We have a wonderful Passover lamb. Please bless us with eyes to see him. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I was recently at a table with some other people in the church when the question was asked, What are some holiday traditions that you have shared in with your family over the years? And if you'd been around that table, I'm sure that you would have had something to share. Maybe even as you sit there right now, you think of some of the traditions that your family has partaken of for holidays over the years. And most of the time, you're not going to realize that a tradition is starting when it does, right? You don't know that you're going to be practicing this very thing for years to come. You are just enjoying the moment when it happens. So much so you're enjoying it that you remember it fondly. And you practice it again and again in the years to come. What we see in these verses right here is the establishment of a family tradition. But the comparisons between this, what's taking place in this passage, and other regular practices that you you do with your family has to end with the regularity of it. What Jesus does here with his disciples and what we do when we come around this table every month is so much more than just a tradition. We are a family. 
And we do celebrate regularly the elements of the Lord's table. But this, what we practice on the first Sunday of every month, is a source of spiritual life for us. As we celebrate the life-giving death of the Son of God. And there is a danger, is there not, with anything that becomes regular or routine for it to become just another tradition. Something that loses its strength or loses its power. And we never want the Lord's table to become that for us. And I hope that as we examine the origins of what we do on this Sunday, that we will see this with fresh eyes and fresh hearts. New love for Christ. A renewal take place as we see the truths of our Passover lamb. I've got three points that I'd like to make today about the Passover. The Passover's past, the Passover's perfection, and the Passover's preparation. Angel, where are you? I did that just for you. All those peas. <laughs> We're going to start with the Passover's past. Look with me at verse 12. Look at what it says here. It says, on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb. So there's a feast that's beginning here for God's people. It is the most important feast on the Jewish calendar. When thousands and thousands of people descended upon Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. People would crowd into the walls of this city to be here to celebrate the great acts of God. It is a remembrance of the salvation that God had worked for his people when he brought them out from Egypt. And what God did in the Exodus foreshadows what he would do for us in Christ. So this was the old covenant salvation that the people of God celebrated. It's written about throughout the Old Testament. The people remember what God had done for them. Psalms are written for this, singing the praises of God for the salvation that he had wrought for the people way back so long ago. And this feast remembers back to the night when God called them out of Egypt. If you remember the setting back then, if you've read Exodus any time recently, you know that there were ten plagues that God worked. Nine of them had already taken place at this point. Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not let God's people go. And the last plague that was going to be worked was going to be the worst of all, that God would kill the firstborn son firstborn male in every family as a judgment on all the land of Egypt. Up until this point, every plague that God had brought had only touched the Egyptians. Israel was excluded. They were separate. They lived in the land of Goshen. Whatever happened to the Egyptian people did not happen to the Israelite people. They didn't deal with the horde of frogs. They didn't deal with the bugs. When darkness came for three days in Egypt and no man could see his hand in front of his face, Israel still lived in the light. They weren't touched by any of these things. There was no threat of danger to them. But there is something different about this last plague. The firstborn sons of the Israelites are not automatically spared from death. 
They are told they must do something so that their sons will be spared. This is the purpose of the Passover lamb. The lamb dies in the place of those sons. The lamb is going to be a substitute so that they do not die. So the implication of this is, is if the lamb does not die, God will bring judgment on his people too, just as he is going to do in the homes of the Egyptians. So the whole family takes part in the meal that includes unleavened bread, bitter herbs, wine, and the lamb. And judgment is spared to them by the blood of that lamb that is smeared on the doorposts of that house. So that when the angel of the Lord travels overhead that night, he sees the blood on those homes and he passes over those houses. Thus, the Passover. Every year after this, the people of God were to celebrate a feast remembering that particular night when God delivered his people from Egypt, but also remembering God delivering his people from his own judgment because of the Lamb. And so that is the difference between that last plague that took place, number 10, and all the other nine that took place before it. The Egyptian sins were being judged in the death of their own firstborn sons. If you remember the story, everybody wakes up in the morning, they look around and they find out what has taken place. And it is now at this point the Egyptians begin to beg God's people to leave and start taking off all their earrings and their bracelets and all the gold and jewelry that they have, asking them, please get out of our country. We want you to leave. Even the son in Pharaoh's house had lost his life. But the Israelites' sins were being placed on the Lamb who took the judgment of God as their substitute. Many centuries later, we come to this text in Mark chapter 14, and we see one of these celebrations beginning to take place. It's the first day of the feast. It is time to sacrifice the Passover lamb. And Jesus' disciples ask him, where are we going to go and eat the feast? And Jesus, he has it all planned out in advance. And we see the Passover's preparation. He asked two disciples. Mark doesn't tell us their names. John does, though. We know that they are Peter and John. I'm sorry, Luke does. Peter and John. Two of Jesus' most trusted men. We are told there in verse 13, he says to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may share the Passover with my disciples? And he'll show you a large upper room furnished and ready there. Prepare for us. Strange instructions, aren't they? 
We, we don't get any of the back and forth after this. We don't hear Peter asking any questions about like, hey, Jesus, why don't you just tell us the house you want us to go to? You know, there are thousands and thousands of people that are crowded in Jerusalem right now. How are we supposed to find one man with a water, with a water jug on his shoulders? What happens, Jesus, when we get there and don't see the man? We don't get any of that. We simply get that they went and they found it just as he had told them, of course. This is very similar if you remember back when Jesus makes his way into Jerusalem and he tells them to go and find the colt that's tied up. Actually, 10 words right here are the exact same 10 words that he uses back then. Same type of instructions that Jesus gives to them in this place. So maybe they come to this point and they say, well, remember Jesus did this before and we found that colt tied up and they were ready to turn it loose to us. So maybe they just went. But we have to admit that this does seem very secret, doesn't it? Strange still. Why? Why all the secrecy and why the strange directions here? Because Jesus could have sent more than two disciples. Why only two? He could have told them the house where they were going to be. But he gives them what we read here with no back and forth. The expectations of what they should find, the instructions that are spot on. What could be the explanation for all that we see here? We have to remember, if you remember where we were last week, we talked about Jesus and the plot to betray him. This comes immediately after we're told that Judas Iscariot is looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus. And in John's gospel, he tells us that the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. So they're trying to find out where Jesus is apart from all the crowds in order that they might be able to arrest him. So it seems that Jesus' secrecy here and his strange instructions that he gives are given so that his location is hidden from those who were wanting to arrest him. To keep the location of the Last Supper hidden from anybody, even the rest of the disciples. So he just sends his two most trusted ahead to find this place. It would seem that he especially is keeping his location hidden from Judas, who would have gone to tell the officials where Jesus was going to be that night while they were having the supper. But we know that it was especially important to Jesus that he eat the Passover with these men. And even though that Jesus is in control of everything that is taking place, he knows everything that's taking place. He knows the man's going to be carrying the water jug. He knows all the details. He's in control of this. He is not at the mercy of anybody. Yet we see that Jesus is still not reckless. He uses wisdom. He keeps things hidden from those who would harm him so that he can carry out the final works that the Father has given to him, the final time that he would teach these men. If you ever read John 14 to 17, you read those times that Jesus spent in the upper room, that discourse that he had with his disciples. He taught them much on this particular night. And so in verse 16, we see that the disciples set out into the city and they find everything just as Jesus has told him, and they prepare the Passover for the feast. And sometime later that day, Jesus himself makes his way into the city with all the rest of the disciples, possibly others with him, to eat the Passover, to teach them that final time. That's the Passover's 
preparation. And lastly, the Passover's perfection. The Passover's perfection. The Jews had established traditions over the years for what they were going to do on this particular night. There was an order that most Jewish homes would have followed. Certain things took place during the meal. It was divided into four parts, with each part ending with a drink of a glass of wine. First part of the meal would have been the family's head. Whoever was the lead man in the house, he would lead everything that took place, and he would perform a blessing over the gathering. He would pray. And then secondly, there would be a child, somebody in the home, who was going to ask a question. What, what makes this night different from all the rest? Why is this night special to our family? And then the father would read a portion of scripture from Deuteronomy chapter 26, telling them about the salvation that God had worked on their behalf. And then thirdly, he would pray over all the food that represented something of their coming out of Egypt or something about the Exodus, and everyone would eat. And then lastly, they would all sing Psalms 116 to 118 and then finish with the last cup of wine. If Jesus was following this pattern that night, we see that they're already in the third part of the meal because they are eating. We see that in verse 18. They were reclining at table and eating the meal. And Jesus reveals to them there that one of those who is with him will betray him. He doesn't reveal the betrayer's name. He doesn't call all the other disciples to know who he was and then stop this man. He simply tells them that it is one of the twelve, one of those who are closest to him. There could have been other people present there that night, other disciples, but Jesus makes sure that they know that it would be one of the most unexpected of them, those who are closest to him. Not just a disciple, but one of the disciples. And the response that they give here shows how shocking this announcement was to them. Because they all were said to be, in verse 19, sorrowful. And they said to one another, is it me? I think there's something very humbling about their response. Each one of these men knew that they were capable of great evil. Even though none of them, except Judas, had made any plans to betray their friend, to betray their teacher, they all understood the power of sin inside of them. That's something that we can all learn from. Because what do we normally do? We often give ourselves the benefit of the doubt, don't we? We make excuses for ourselves and our own sins and what we've done and justify it. Thinking that we're not capable 
of the great sins that we know that everybody else is capable of. But here, surprisingly, the disciples don't point the finger at each other for once. They actually wonder about themselves. Is it me? Am I going to be the one who does this? Jesus points them to the scriptures. And he says that this betrayal is written about him in the Old Testament as a prophecy. And he says, the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. He's saying, this is going to happen to me. My death is coming. It has been written long beforehand what would take place to me. The Son of Man is Jesus' preferred name for himself. But you will not find an Old Testament prophecy saying that the Son of Man was going to die. You don't find a prophecy saying that the Son of Man is going to be betrayed. But you do see the servant of the Lord in Isaiah 53. He's going to die. You do see a David figure being persecuted and killed in the Psalms. And Jesus sees all of these Old Testament figures, including the Son of Man, pointing to him. Our Lord knows the reason why he has come into this world, and it is to give his life in the place of sinners, just as the scriptures say. It's going to happen. But even so, what does Jesus say here about the one who is going to betray him? He says, woe to that man who betrays him. It would be better, he says, for that man to have never been born. We're not told about the inner thoughts of Judas. We're not told what his response was when all the other disciples were wondering, is it me? We don't know if Judas kind of falsely spoke up and said, is it me? Like all the rest. We don't know if he was acting at this point. We don't know what he was thinking or what he was saying. We have to believe that he would have been very uneasy for Jesus to have said these words. When he's the only one in the room besides Jesus that knows, yes, I am the one who has plotted to betray this man. And Jesus right now is telling me that he knows. More than likely, Judas didn't know at this point that Jesus knew. So imagine the discomfort that is in Judas's heart at this particular point. Maybe these words from Jesus... Maybe these words were a kindness, giving this man an opportunity to repent. And of course, Jesus knew the sovereign plan of God. Of course, Jesus knew that there was a prophecy that one of his friends would betray him. But God's sovereign plan would not force Judas to commit this sin. It was his own doing. Judas wanted to do it. Nobody had to twist his arm to go and betray his Lord. He went to the chief priests. He had heard that they wanted to see Jesus crucified and killed. So he went to them. 
And at this particular moment, Jesus is patiently dealing with this man and his evil. What a heart our Savior has for sinners, even the worst of them. And what an encouragement we can find in our Christ. There is no greater sin that could be committed than this right here that Judas has plotted. And here the Lord is. He is submitting to the plan of God, but he is also leaving the door open for repentance. Is there something in what Jesus is doing here for this sinner that you might find helpful for yourself? Are you wrestling with any particular sin this morning? Have you wondered if anybody else knows what you have plotted in your own heart or maybe even carried out? Are you having to conceal anything for fear of being found out? Have you wondered if it's okay to continue in this? Have you wrestled with it? You need to know that the Lord is patient toward sinners to a point. And right now, you are experiencing his kindness as you run headlong into your own destruction. But eventually, patience runs out. And judgment comes. And hardness of heart sets in. Here is Jesus about to go to his death and it seems that the only thing that can come from these particular words that he says to his disciples, the only reason, why else would he reveal that he knows that one of them is going to betray him? Why not just keep that to himself? If he knows that it's just going to happen, that this man is going to do it, God's sovereign plan, there's no sense in saying anything, no sense in doing anything, and I believe in the sovereignty of God, and I believe in God's predetermined plans, but yet what we see here with Jesus is also an understanding of the responsibility of man. Judas will be responsible for his actions. There is no other reason why he had to mention this that night except to speak in a sense directly to Judas. So it seems that Jesus in this particular moment is extending the kindness of God to a sinner. And he still does that today. And maybe that's the exact situation that you find yourself in this morning. God extending his kindness to you while you wrestle with sin. He is patiently calling you to repentance. The turning of your sin. And trusting in the mercy of God. So brothers and sisters, sometimes we need our hearts laid bare before the Lord and laid bare before our own eyes so that we can see our need for God's mercy. Let's look at the completion of Jesus' meal here. Let me read again verses 22 to 26. It says, As they were eating, he took bread. And after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup. 
And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. I mentioned before that uh, there were different elements of the Passover meal that pointed to God's deliverance of his people, whether it was in Egypt or when they were in the Exodus. And so there's the unleavened bread. And what is unleavened bread? It means that it doesn't have any yeast in it. It won't rise. There's no time to wait for that to take place. And so we eat it unleavened, hastily. It's supposed to be quick. The bitter herbs are a reminder of the bitterness of their time in Egypt. The lamb is representative of the deliverance from the judgment of God. But what does Jesus say about all these things that they're eating that night? About these particular elements, the bread, the cup. He doesn't talk about the old Passover. He's not reciting anything about their leaving from Egypt and a remembrance of what God has done in the past. What is he pointing to in this meal? He is pointing to himself. He's saying, take this bread, my body. And he's saying, take this cup, which represents my blood of the covenant, a new covenant that God is making with his people. There's something different that is taking place at this Passover meal. If you remember the story of the Israelites, right after the Ten Commandments were given, Moses took a basin of blood and threw it all over the people. God was establishing his covenant in blood with them. Jesus is doing the same thing here. He's saying there is a covenant that God is establishing by my blood, and this cup represents that. This old tradition is giving way to something new. Jesus is telling them about a greater work that God is doing, and it points to him. When you read about the Last Supper in any of the four Gospels, or even when Paul writes about it, because he describes what Jesus did on this particular night, you might notice that there is something missing. Something so obviously missing from the meal, yet maybe we've just gotten so used to what we do, we don't catch it. We read of the bread. We read of the wine. But where is the lamb? Well, of course, we know that the lamb is there all along. The Passover lamb that was first killed in Egypt, whose blood was smeared on the doorposts, protection for those people from the wrath of God that would be coming overhead that night, that lamb could never be a substitute for sinners, not a final substitute. But the lamb that is at this dinner, that lamb could. Those who are under his blood are shielded from a worse death, a worse judgment, the eternal wrath of God. 
His blood, Jesus' blood is life for those who put their trust in him. I want you to think about the faith of those ancient Israelites as they're being told by Moses what is going to happen that night. Think about this. Now, we just read the stories. We think, of course, that's what took place. But imagine you were there. Moses comes to you and says, tonight we're going to be leaving. We're going to be leaving quickly. All right? You got your, you got your belt on. Your sandals are on your feet. We're going to eat a real quick meal. God is going to bring a final judgment here on this land. He's going to come tonight and he is going to kill the firstborn of all who are in the land of Egypt. You're included in that, but don't worry. God says that if you kill a lamb and smear its blood on your doorpost, you can go to sleep tonight and sleep well. Think about the faith that these people had to have as they laid down that night. When they've got a son over here in this bed, you think you would have slept well that night? I don't know. Maybe they did. Maybe they had great faith and trusted in God. But that's what they're being told to do. Your only hope is to be under the blood of that lamb. If you trust in God, you won't be judged. Great faith to take God at his word in that moment, right? That's what's being told to us. All we have is the promise of God that what saves us from his judgment is this lamb right here who gave his life and shed his blood so that any who are under it are spared the judgment of God. This is no small thing. It genuinely does require great faith to take God at his word, to be able to go to sleep at night knowing that if I die, that I will stand before the Lord and he has promised me that all that I need is faith in his son, that I have not earned anything. I do not merit anything before God. His son has, and he gave his life for me so that when I stand before the Lord, my plea is the blood of Jesus Christ, that I admit that I am a sinner and I deserve death. But you have promised me, O Lord, that any under the blood will receive your grace and receive your mercy. Do you, brothers and sisters, take God at his word today? This is no flippant thing. Are you trusting in the blood of Jesus Christ to wash you of your sins? Do you believe that you have merited the opposite of God's mercy? You've merited his judgment and maybe you're not what you would see here in Judas, a great sinner. Oh, I wouldn't do anything like this. But even the smallest sins merit the judgment of God. You are not holy or pure like he is and cannot stand in his presence. It is impossible for a sinner to come before the Lord, right? Only through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what brings you into the presence of God. And so when we come before this table every month, 
We are professing what we believe. That only by faith, only by faith can we be received by God. His salvation has been worked by blood. And we are shielded from the wrath of God and cleansed by it. Jesus told his church to do this. Do this right here in remembrance of him. So that we would be reminded as often as we do it of his saving, shielding blood until he returns for his church. It is our family tradition. And so if this describes you this morning, that you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, we invite you to partake of the table. If that is not the case, or you are doubtful this morning as to your place in the kingdom of God, we would ask that you refrain from partaking of the table. Talk to somebody here about what it means to be saved, about what it means to be under the blood of Jesus Christ, and ensure that you have repented of your sins and trusted in your Savior. And next month, when we come back to this table, we would invite you to join with us. Those who will be serving the table this morning, if you would, please come forward. And I'll pray as we close this portion of our worship. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning. We cannot thank you enough for your mercy and your kindness toward us sinners. We confess as a church, and I pray, God, that you would search every heart that is in this room to see where every person is so they would ensure that they are in the faith and under the blood of Jesus Christ. And we pray, Lord, that you will bless this time as we look to our Savior, hopefully with some renewal in our hearts as we see what this supper is all about. It is about our Passover lamb who shed his blood, and his blood has been smeared, in a sense, on the doorposts of our hearts so that we don't receive judgment. We receive your grace, and you pass over us. And not only do you pass over us, you receive us into your family. We get what we do not deserve. So much kindness, so much love, eternal love. And we will be singing about our Passover lamb forever. And we thank you, God. And we pray all this in the name of our strong Savior, Jesus. Amen.